Needy Meds needs your help. Ever since I started Needy Meds 25 years ago, all the information on the website has been free. In the beginning, there were two very part-time employees. Now we have a staff of 30. When we started, we only had information on patient assistance programs. Now we have data on 40,000 programs covering 15 different types of assistance. When we started, we would get 100 visitors daily to the website. Now we get 10,000 to 15,000 visits daily. In the past, we have been able to cover our operating costs. But this year will be different. Due to our website host going out of business, it became necessary for us to update our entire data system and website. This update will give our site's visitor a much needed comprehensive search experience. As a result, for the first time in our 25-year history, we're facing an operating deficit. We're asking you to help us out. We have big plans for 2023, but we need your help to accomplish them. If everyone who visits our website donates just $5 per month, we could eliminate the deficit. We know that many can't afford $5 every month. Even donating just once can help. Needy Meds is a 501c3 nonprofit, and all contributions are tax deductible. I hope we have helped you or a loved one save on your healthcare costs. This is how you can help Needy Meds. Please make your donation today. Thank you so much for listening. You can make your donation at needymeds.org slash donate. Stay tuned for the Health Savings News Podcast. You can find transcripts for all of our episodes at blog.needymeds.org. As well as other recent entries, including cold and flu season during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, and welcome to Health Savings News, the podcast about healthcare costs in America and how to save money on the often expensive care all kinds of people need. I'm your host, Evan O'Connor, joined by retired doctors Rich Sagel and Mike Woods. Each episode, we discuss healthcare costs in America, offer tips for saving money, and relevant news that affects and reflects the expensive landscape of healthcare in America. This week's topic is a continuation of last week's of why healthcare costs so much. Last time we discussed the systemic reasons for expensive healthcare in the United States, and this week we'll be talking about the medical reasons that affect healthcare costs. I think it's important to remember that prevention is better than any treatment, so we want to emphasize that. Non-adherence is also a problem, which is not following a treatment plan. The reason you have a treatment plan is to control problem, and that helps to control costs by keeping down unnecessary and emergency medical care. Non-compliance can fall into a couple of categories. One is just not taking the pills or doing the treatments. Another is inability to comply with the treatment plan. Maybe it's due to financial reasons or personal reasons or the treatment plan is overly complex. Chronic diseases such as cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease are responsible for most of the deaths and healthcare costs in this country. It's estimated that the sickest 5% of our population generate 50% of the total health care costs, and the healthiest 50% generate only 3%. Another aspect of keeping health care costs down is lifestyle choices. There are many things that we do in this country that cause preventable diseases, 
This includes obesity, smoking, substance abuse, poor oral hygiene, and environmental damages resulting in exposure such as air pollution, increased radiation from the sun, excessive heat, tainted water, toxic waste, or spills. While chronic diseases such as cardiovascular disease and diabetes continue to increase in frequency, much of this could have been prevented with lifestyle changes in early diagnosis and treatment. We can talk about poor eating habits, and this can be due to choice or to poor access. We talk about food deserts, which refer to the inability to find healthy foods at reasonable prices, and grocery stores are too far away to be convenient. It's estimated that over 23 million Americans live in what are called food deserts in this country, nearly half of whom are low income. When we talk about lifestyle choices and access to food and eating habits, we're really talking about the social determinants of health. Housing, clean air, clean water, public sanitation, social supports. These are all parts of healthcare that are not always addressed. Well, speaking of prevention, let's talk about vaccines. Vaccines have been one of the biggest success stories in medicine. Over the past century, we have significantly reduced a large number of many devastating infections. The problem is the fact that most of these diseases, maybe with the exception of smallpox, have not disappeared. So this current trend of vaccine hesitancy and refusal uh, has resulted in increasing the number of uh, otherwise preventable infections that the scientists have worked so hard over the years to uh, suppress. The most well-known, and we've talked about it in the past, is measles. The reduction in measles vaccination was associated with a fabricated report uh, of an association of the MMR vaccine with autism spectrum disorder. Unfortunately, now that these findings have been negated, it has not changed many people's minds about the MMR vaccine. There are examples in adults that are very preventable diseases, including shingles and pneumococcus. I was a practicing pediatrician about 20 years ago. I remember we had a whooping cough epidemic in our nursery. We eventually figured out that the infants were catching it from adults whose pertussis immunity had worn off over time. And adding pertussis to the current uh, adult tetanus and diphtheria boosters resolved the issue. Today, the most current examples are influenza and uh, COVID-19. Because of vaccine hesitancy and refusal each year, many people get and die from influenza because of their lack of vaccination. For the COVID-19 infection, this has produced a lot of significant results, including prolongation of the pandemic, more people with COVID disease that would otherwise have avoided it, a huge financial burden on healthcare costs, a detrimental effect on our and the world's economy, such as the current inflation rate. In addition, there's been millions of unused COVID vaccination doses that have wasted an enormous amount of money. To summarize, to help fight this, it's important to remember that although vaccines are not without risk and they don't always work, the side effects are much milder than the disease and the complications of the disease itself. And that the anxiety and fear that has resulted in reduced vaccination rates are often due to exaggerated or sensationalized reports by the anti-vaxxers. One important way to keep medical costs down is appropriate medical screening for diseases. And the screening contributes to saving costs in two ways. 
not screening is a missed opportunity and to catch the disease at an early stage where treatment makes the most difference and the diseases instead present later on when they're more severe, more costly, and have more complications. Screening may not be as effective for those without risk factors. Screening and providing preventive treatment for large numbers of people to prevent a few from developing disease can needlessly increase the cost of preventive care. The cost effectiveness and likelihood of the benefit of screening are being considered before implementing them. Although some habits are hard to break, even in the medical world, when presented with evidence, we need to reevaluate the value of some screening tests. Over time, another major cost of increased medical care is population changes. We've already talked about the fact that there are now more people with chronic conditions and severe diseases as a result of the issues that Rich has already discussed. However, another thing that we can't avoid is that we have an aging population. Now, medical care improves over time, and people live longer, and they need medical care for a a longer amount of time. And over time, the amount of conditions that each person has increases, so an elderly person will have many more individual medical conditions than a young and healthy person. As a matter of fact, uh, adults over 65, and especially those over 85, have five times higher medical expenses than children and almost three times more health expenses than working age people. Elderly and people with chronic diseases are more likely to need emergency room treatments and hospitalizations. They often have trouble affording medications, which starts a vicious cycle that results in both more health problems, more ER visits, and higher medical costs. The aging baby boomer generation has also resulted in a lower ratio of working age people to retirement age citizens. Currently, it's about 3.5 to 1, but that ratio is decreasing over time, meaning that As time goes on, more people will be on Medicare and more people will be on Social Security over time as the amount of people paying taxes to support part of these programs decreases. COVID has produced a lot of unemployment over time and from that, a lot more people with low income who now will need Medicaid or other premium assistance programs for medical health. I would say more than unemployment, COVID also has added to people unable to work either through disability or chronic health that has come from their COVID infections. Another one that is very commonly seen is overuse of medical services, and in a lot of cases, especially emergency rooms. While emergency rooms are crucial for care of critically ill patients and those with urgent medical needs, they are used for an entire gamut of medical care, including a lot of care traditionally done by primary care providers. Although this may be the only option for those without insurance, since since people in emergency rooms are required to care for patients regardless of their ability to pay. However, for those who could have seen a less expensive option. Emergency rooms are very expensive for routine problems. Patients pay both provider fees and all of the ER costs. Emergency room providers tend to order more tests because they often lack the ability to follow up patients to see how they've done on the treatments. For the same reason, they often provide unnecessary care. And although most insurance companies do charge higher co-pays for emergency care and pay less if the care was not emergent or an emergency, it really doesn't offset the extra cost. In fact, unnecessary ER visits can cost up to $32 billion a year. 
This all cycles back to the policyholders in the form of higher premiums, higher contributions to employee-sponsored health insurance, and or higher out-of-pocket expenses, uh, such as deductibles and co-pays. A lot of this money spent in ERs could have been avoided if patients took better care of themselves, as we've uh, previously discussed. Uh, Other contributors to the unnecessary visits include uh, those that are for trivial problems or ones that could have been resolved with a phone call. There's also a lot of unnecessary and inappropriate visits to specialists for reasons such as not trusting their primary care doctor to have the knowledge to take care of that particular problem, or pressure from friends or uh, others that insist that they see a specialist for their problem. Medical care is done by humans, so doctors like us were prone to error, excess, and waste from uh, medical errors, inappropriate, unnecessary, not our network uh, medical care to unused medications and medical supplies that adds up to about 25% of the total medical spending. We also need to look at errors in what we call low-value care. Medical and medication errors are detrimental in terms of human suffering and can be financially costly. It was estimated in 2019 the impact of medical errors and medication errors was over $600 million. That's just in Massachusetts. More costly is that 86% of mistakes are made in the healthcare industry administrative and can cost over $216 billion. Another thing to look at is unnecessary and low-value testing and treatment. When we say low-value, these are tests that don't contribute to treatment decisions such as follow-up imaging, routine labs, annual checkups, etc. Tests are easy to misinterpret. A rapid strep screen without a clinical suspicion may give a positive result that not, does not indicate an infection. Random urinalysis rarely shows any significant problems. Another issue is overtreatment. This is care with little to no benefit to the patient, such as treating self-limiting conditions or overprescribing antibiotics. Like any other uh, industry and things in life, there's a lot of waste that happens in medicine. It includes waste of resources, supplies, and time. A lot of the causes of waste include uh, administrative complexity. So as with healthcare insurance, a lot of administrative costs are due to the uh, necessity of more employees to handle the increasingly complex system that we've talked about in the past. And this can result in over $250 billion of uh, wasted money. There is occasionally some inadvertent or even deliberate overcharging of patients that uh, healthcare providers and testing facilities can get away with, and that can amount to about the same amount at about 230 to 240 billion dollars a year. People missing appointments isn't as innocuous as it would seem from a financial point of view. In fact, $150 billion a year is wasted on time and resources that need to be spent for missed appointments. Staff have to track down uh, patients who missed appointments, notify them, and spend time rescheduling the appointments. There are missed opportunities for preventive care or reducing the severity of disease that could have prevented uh, medical problems in the future. And there's also having to pay salary for staff that have less to do when patients don't come to the office. There is ineffective care that's similar to what we've talked about as low-value care, but in this case, it's uh, injuries and worse clinical outcomes due to providers using outdated or ineffectual treatments, which can result in almost $100 billion of year excess, 
or poor execution or lack of widespread adoption of the best clinical care practice, such as the preventive care practices and screening we now know are effective, patient safety issues such as condoning stopping smoking, wearing seatbelts, helmets on bikes, and things like that. So if the providers spent more time on these sort of preventive activities, we might be able to save up to $165 billion a year. Another issue is unused medications. It's estimated that 67% of all prescriptions go unused, and there are a number of reasons for this. The patient may just stop taking the medication. The prescriber may give more medication than is needed. The medicine may expire before it can be used. Patients will often stockpile medication to have it just in case they need it later on. Lost medication, unneeded refills, and too many medications to take for the patient to take them properly. Another problem is taking unnecessary medications. We're talking about cough and cold medications, for example, pain meds for very little or small aches or small pains, antibiotics for viral infections. It's estimated that $10 billion of unused over-the-counter medications are incinerated every year. This doesn't even account for all the medications sitting unused and usually expired in medicine cabinets or thrown out. And we haven't taken into account the use of supplements, homeopathic medicine, and other unproven treatments. Yeah, speaking of waste, we produce more medical waste than any other country in the world. Annually, we produce about 3.5 million tons of medical waste at an average disposal cost of $790 per ton. So this totals about another $2.8 billion added to medical costs. And unfortunately, uh, again, as Rich mentioned above, a lot of this waste is unused. Much of this is due to a process called bundling. Uh, it's especially seen in during surgical and other procedures where a sterile package containing anything that could possibly be used for that specific procedure all in one sterile package, usually at the request of the provider. During the procedure, only some of these supplies are used and the unused ones are, are, are thrown out or needing to have the expensive process of sterilization done on them for them to be used uh, the next time around. Some of the most common things are sponges, blue towels, and gloves, but sometimes even one-time use attachments to instruments and medical devices go unused and are thrown out. There's also, like medications, there's also a lot of unused medical supplies that get thrown out that are either discarded because they're past their expiration date or replaced with updated ones, and the hospitals spend a lot of money keeping track of this and doing this. Uh, when you're in the hospital, you get a package uh, for your room that may include a urinal, uh, a cup, stuff like that. And most of the time, they're never even opened because most patients don't really need a bedpan. Despite that, uh, all this unused stuff is uh, thrown out over the years. Uncoordinated medical care and miscommunication also contributes significantly to the excessive costs of medication. So this is for communication between medical or healthcare providers, medical systems, insurance companies, and hospitals. This results in over $78 billion a year in excess costs. A lot of this miscommunication results in fragmented and disjointed care, such as redundant services, testing and treatment, unnecessary hospital readmissions when the inpatient doctor doesn't communicate with the outpatient doctor to continue a treatment plan out of the hospital. 
It also results in avoidable complications, declines in functional status, and, and otherwise adverse effects for those that are chronically ill. Even if you are missing a chart or lack the appropriate information at the time of a visit or an admission, which happens in up to 30% of visits, it has the same effect. The medical people have to go over your history again, fill in all the missing information from the chart, which takes time and obviously a lot of extra money. About 80% of all serious medical errors and approximately 20% of all malpractice claims involve a specific type of miscommunication between healthcare providers called handoff communication. This is where two uh, providers transmit information about a patient they are taking care of to the new doctor who will now be taking over the care of that patient. Mostly it happens in a hospitalist situation where a different hospitalist has finished his coverage for the week and is now passing on all of his patients to the new provider. Now, that's a lot of information, and it's, it's not difficult to imagine that they're not going to get all the, the nuances and important information in the time they spent handing off. But it also happens in the handoff of patients from inpatient providers to the primary care or, or the primary care person to the facility that they are admitting them to. So a lot of this results in patient harms, delays in treatment, inappropriate treatment, increased lengths of stay in a hospital, uh, and a lot of wasted time giving medical history and information lists to multiple providers. Another problem is what we call feudal medical care. This is when care is given and it's not going to affect the outcome. Some examples are resuscitation efforts when the chances of revival are negligible, such as when someone dies at home without advanced care directives or a do-not-resuscitate order, unwitnessed cardiac arrests, Another example is patients who are put on life-prolonging treatment with little or no chance of recovery. They have a terminal illness, such as end-stage cancer, and further treatment may not extend their life, or if it does, it's by a small amount. Another issue we have to deal with is newly developed technologies and cutting-edge care. Although medical devices account for 2% of healthcare spending in 2019, new or increased use of medical technology contributes a much larger share to the increasing cost of medical care. New high-tech treatments are being developed to help patients better control chronic diseases such as diabetes. There are lots of good treatments, but often we don't know when to use them, and so we use them on everybody. These new treatments are often very expensive and may not have clear-cut benefits over traditional treatments. This is especially true with unnecessary features. For example, there is a more expensive glucose monitor that talks to people with diabetes. Although it makes sense for those who have developed visual impairment, it may not be necessary for those who can see normally. The higher cost includes all the accessories you might need for something new, such as special batteries, custom connectors and tubing, probes, sensors, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, a smartphone, necessary software updates, and replacements when things wear out. Many new high-tech testing methods are also being developed. This occurs when new treatments may not have an advantage over traditional or less expensive methods. There also may be methods that do not replace older methods but are used in addition to them and may not be necessary. And while many reveal additional details, in many cases the details may inform healthcare professionals without resulting in any change in treatment. We use high-tech medical instruments and other medical technologies more often than in other countries. 
like pharmaceutical companies who manufacture and supply these devices are also unregulated and make generous profits from the devices they sell. In many instances, there's limited competition for de- with these devices, and this can lead to high costs, which insurance companies try to negotiate to lower the cost or pass the cost on to the patient. Like pharmaceutical companies, device manufacturers spend lots of money on advertising to hospitals, healthcare providers, and patients. Despite this, they typically have a margin profit of about 12%. The final contribution to the cost of medical care is sort of near and dear to all of us who have or are providers, and that's uh, malpractice and defensive medicine. Malpractice, real or perceived, contributes to a higher medical cost in several ways. In each case, the ultimate financial burden is passed on to patients. Uh, malpractice insurance is expensive. Both healthcare facilities and healthcare providers uh, have malpractice insurance. Most hospitals are for profit, and uh, physicians or healthcare providers like to earn good salaries. So these costs for malpractice result in increased fees that are charged by the hospitals and the medical care providers. Medical su- lawsuits, in of themselves, are very expensive even if malpractice didn't occur and and the the case is eventually dismissed. Although the the complication is there is a legal concept for standard of care, which is defined as an acceptable degree of care and skill that the average healthcare provider who practices in that specialty is expected to give based on the medical knowledge that is currently available in the field. Despite that very nice, accurate description, in court, the uh, definition of malpractice is actually somewhat arbitrary. In a lot of cases, the juries are more uh, sympathetic toward the patient in these cases, and the arbitrariness of that allows that to happen. You can see, if you follow graphs uh, or studies, you see that when the amount of uh, malpractice uh, settlements go up, the cost of medical care goes up with it. Even frivolous lawsuits uh, contribute to this. Malpractice is a very complicated subject and it's continuing to evolve, so it's nothing we can get into in detail in here, but uh, the future may hold the development of specific guidelines for medical care that will bring consistency to the legal aspects of uh, malpractice. This is, this, however, this still won't uh, address any of the unregulated or frivolous uh, uh, medical sediments. To a lesser degree, defensive medicine contributes to this. So theoretically, the best way to avoid malpractice is to do as much as you can to prevent anyone uh, looking to blame you for a bad medical result. So what the providers in the hospitals try to do to prevent this is to do unnecessary referrals, to unnecessary testing and scans, to cover all bases, including for things that are very unlikely to happen. So in many cases, this will be in order to rule out a rare or, again, unlikely condition or to appease a patient so that the provider can't be accused of ignoring the patient's information or of doing everything possible to rule out particular diseases. As a matter of fact, three-quarters of physicians do this, 21% of them actually do it on a regular basis. So it does contribute a lot, and I don't know how eventually this will resolve itself, but it really does come down to a trust issue between uh, patients and physicians, which to me seems a little bit rocky at the moment for whatever reason.
Well, I think that it, it's a difficult issue because patients come in with certain expectations. And I think it's incumbent upon the physician to try to determine what the patient's expectations are and address those. Good communications can lessen the need for unnecessary testing and unnecessary medications, but often the physicians and other providers don't have enough time to really address those issues. Or they occasionally will meet somebody who's not open to having that kind of discussion. That's true. Despite all the information that we gave you today, we've really only scratched the surface of why our medical care is so expensive, and we could never hope to, to cover all the issues, but the most important thing to remember is that it's, it's all complex systems that are interrelated to, to each other, whether it's social determinants, how doctors practice, how patients perceive medicine, how efficient we are at using resources it's all so complexly interrelated that it's really difficult for any one person to understand, let alone get across in a, in a short podcast like this one. The last segment of each episode, we suggest some of the culture, art, entertainment, and social causes we've been engaged with to each other and our listeners. This is the last episode we're doing before the midterm elections, so I just want to encourage everybody to get out and vote on November 8th or early if that's available in your area. We encourage you to support health care, health equity, and lower health care costs, and all care for all people. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Health Savings News. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the show. It really does help. You can follow at NeedyMeds on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and you can follow at HealthSavingPod, no S at the end of saving, on Twitter for updates specific for this podcast and send questions, comments, or topic suggestions to podcasts at NeedyMeds.org. Our music is composed by Samuel Rulon Miller. His music can be found at musicisadirtyword.bandcamp.com. The Health Savings News Podcast is produced by me, Evan O'Connor. All the sources we use in our research can be found in this episode's podcast description on our website or your podcast app of choice. Health Savings News is not intended to substitute for professional, medical, financial, or legal advice. Always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare professional or appropriate professional with any questions. Views expressed on Health Savings News are solely those of the individual expressing them. Any views expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Health Savings News, other contributors, the needing meds organization, or staff. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Do you need help affording your prescription medications? Are you a patient advocate or healthcare provider who wants to help your patients afford their healthcare? NeedyMeds is a nonprofit information resource that connects people to programs that will help them afford their medications and other healthcare costs. Our mission is to educate and empower those seeking affordable health care with a vision of affordable health care for all. We achieve our mission by providing databases of information on patient assistance programs that provide medications at low or no cost for those that qualify, coupons and rebates for prescription and over-the-counter medications, free, low-cost, and sliding scale clinics searchable by zip code, recreational camps and retreats, as well as academic scholarships for people of all ages affected by chronic health conditions. Nonprofit and state-sponsored programs that provide various forms of direct assistance to patients based on diagnosis, including financial assistance, 
testing and screenings, assistive technology, durable medical equipment, home or vehicle modifications, travel expenses, lodging, delivered meals or access to a food pantry, home care, child care, service animals, animal assisted therapy, clothing, wigs, scarves, and much more. NeedyMeds also offers a free drug discount card that can be used at over 65,000 participating pharmacies in the United States to save up to 80% on the cash price of your prescriptions. There's no registration or activation, never any personal information is collected, and no restrictions on income or immigration status. The NeedyMeds drug discount card is available as a physical card, a printable version, and a smartphone app. All of our information and the NeedyMeds drug discount card is available for free at NeedyMeds.org or through our toll-free helpline at 1-800-503-6897, open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. NeedyMeds has been helping patients access and afford their health care for over 20 years. Find assistance for yourself, a patient, or a loved one at NeedyMeds.org or toll-free at one 800 503 6897. NeedyMeds is a 501c3 national nonprofit organization. You can find our financial information as well as donate to our ongoing work at NeedyMeds.org.